the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. It can be argued that leadership is the most complex of all human endeavors. Today's guest, Jock Olink, a retired U.S. Navy SEAL officer, teaches how to become an effective leader. He joins us today to discuss how we can understand the leadership game and win at it. Jocko was the leader of the most highly decorated special ops unit of the Iraq War. During his career, he was awarded the Silver Star, the Bronze Star, and numerous other personal and unit awards. In 2010, Jocko retired from the Navy and started a consulting firm that teaches combat leadership principles to help others build their own high-performance teams. Jocko is a New York Times bestselling author and host of Jocko Podcast. His new book is Leadership Strategy and Tactics. Welcome, Jocko. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Joan. So, Jocko, leadership impacts all areas of our life. When you received SEAL training, what were you taught about being a leader? Interestingly enough, when you go through initial SEAL training, you learn almost nothing about leadership. And what you are supposed to do as you move up through the ranks of the SEAL teams, you're supposed to learn your leadership skills from the other leaders around you. Now, if you have a good leader that you happen to be in a platoon with, this can be beneficial. If you have a bad leader that you're in a platoon with, this doesn't help you at all. And actually, what I spent the last few years in the SEAL teams doing was teaching leadership to the young SEALs and also putting it into doctrine so that everyone had the same sort of fundamental leadership principle baseline. So what do you teach these SEALs? What does a strong leader look like? Well, the, the things that I teach the SEALs initially are what I call the four laws of combat, which are cover and move, which is teamwork. It's working together as a team. When one part of a team is doing something, the other part of the team is helping them and supporting them. So cover and move is teamwork. Simple is the next law of combat, which is to keep things simple. If you let them get too complex, you're not going to be able to execute them. Then is, the next one is prioritize and execute. And what this is, you're going to have multiple problems out on the battlefield, and they're all going to happen at the same time. And if you try and solve all those problems at once, you won't be able to solve any of them. You'll solve none of them. So what you have to do is pick the biggest problem and focus your efforts on that until you get that problem solved. Then you can move on to the next one and so on down the line until you're, all your problems are solved. And then the last law of combat is decentralized command, which means that on a team, everybody leads. And that's what you want. As a leader on a team, you want everybody to lead. And you might think that if I have a team of 10 people and everyone's leading, then they're all leading in different directions. And that's where it is key when you're using decentralized command that the overall leader makes sure that everybody on the team understands the mission, the goal, the end state, so that way the subordinates out there in the field can lead towards the common goal all in the same direction. So those are the first things that I teach the young SEAL leaders. And it goes from there. You know, the most important quality that I look for in a leader is that they're humble. Because mm -hmm. if a leader's not humble, they don't listen to anybody else. And when you don't listen to anybody else, you can't be coached, you can't be trained, you already think you know everything, 
and you will never improve. So these are some of the things that, that I taught the young SEALs, and these are actually the things that I've been teaching in the civilian sector now for the last 10 years. What do you think is the biggest mistake people make? Do you think it's letting too much ego in? Uh, ego is the root of many, many problems. And the first book that I wrote was called Extreme Ownership. And the, the underlying principle about that title is I'm not going to blame anybody else when something goes wrong. I'm not going to blame anything else. As a leader, I'm going to take ownership of the problems and I'm going to fix them. And the biggest mistake that I see with teams or leaders is instead of taking ownership when things go wrong, they point their fingers, they blame other people, and what you end up with then is a bunch of people. Because, Joan, if we did something and something went wrong and I point my finger at you and blamed you, what would your natural reaction be? To, to get defensive. Yes, you'd get defensive. And when you got defensive, you would then point your finger at somebody else. And what we'd end up with is a whole team where no one on the team is taking ownership of the problems, and therefore the problems do not get solved. So what we have to do, and one of the biggest mistakes I see leaders make, is that they don't take ownership of problems. They blame other people or other things. Do you think another problem is that people tend to micromanage? Micromanagement is certainly a problem. And again, this comes from a little bit of ego. Uh, in some cases, because I think, well, you know, Joan, I'm the one that runs everything, so you need to check with me before you do anything, right? And it's, it's a fuel to my ego because I think I'm in control, what, when in reality all I'm doing is slowing down the process and I'm not developing you as a leader. So micromanagement is, is an absolute problem. And, and then actually you can go too far in the other direction where you're so hands-off that nobody knows what they're actually supposed to be doing. So what you need to do as a leader is find the balance between being micromanager and being too hands-off. Neither one of those extremes is correct. You need to be somewhere in the middle. Are there daily habits that strong leaders tend to have in common? Daily habits, I think that people that end up in leadership positions definitely have some you know, similar habits. I think that they like to find a good routine, and I think that they attack the things in their world that are the most important. So a leader doesn't shy away from the biggest problems. A leader doesn't shy away from a hard conversation. And I think if I was to say a common trait amongst good leaders is that not only are they humble, yes, absolutely, but on a daily basis they look at, they don't shy away from, from the biggest problems, they attack those things. I can remember years ago when I was an editor of part of a, a magazine editorial team and I was promoted up to the executive editor. One of the most challenging things I experienced was working with the people that were once my friends, my colleagues on the same level. What would you recommend in order to make that transition easier? Yeah, and I've got a, in, in this newest book, Leadership Strategy and Tactics, I've got that exact scenario and explain some situations that I saw where that happened and I saw one individual do it well and the other individual not do it well. And so what you need to do when you get promoted from your peers, look, first of all, you have to elevate a little bit, right? You've been moved into a leadership position and guess what that means? You're going to have to lead. So you have to look at what projects need to be done. You have to look at tasks that need to happen, and you come up with a plan, and you talk to the folks about how you're going to execute it, and then you lead that plan. That's, that's fine. Now, I'm not talking about elevating yourself on such a pedestal that now you're looking down at everyone saying, well, that's right, I've been promoted because I'm better than you, and now I don't have to do the hard work anymore. You all can. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about stepping up to take a leadership position, be a leader without without putting yourself up on a pedestal. And when you get in that new position, uh, again, from personal experience, one of the challenges is learning how to be assertive without coming across as pushy or bossy. What do you teach in that area? You know, the, the easiest thing to do when it comes to being assertive is let other people come up with plans. You know, if instead of me saying, hey, Joan, you know, we've got to get this task done. Here's how I want you to do it, and I want you to do it now. I say, hey, Joan, here's the task that we've got to get done. I trust you. I know you've been doing this for a while. Let me know how you want to get it done. And, and now it's you. It's on you. You've got ownership of it. You've got, you've got a stake in your future, and that makes people more apt to do a good job, to come up with a good plan, and to execute well. If someone's in a situation, what you had just described earlier, about a boss who wants all the credit and none of the blame, 
on the other side, not the leader, but the employee, what can that person do to survive in that type of an environment? Oh, you know, when I've got a, a boss that wants all the credit, you, you want to know what I do? I give it to him. I give it to him. The only part of me that really wants that credit is my ego. And I'm not going to let my ego drive my relationship with my boss. Uh, guess what? My boss is my boss. I'm going to do a great job. And when my boss stands up and says, I want all the credit, I'm going to say, okay, great. Here you go. Here's the credit. Nicely done. What do you want me to do next? The, it, the only thing that wants credit in a situation like that is our ego. And if you're worried about recognition, which is a little bit different, hey, I want the recognition that I got this job done. Look, you have to play the long game. Over time, that recognition, recognition will absolutely come. People know that the boss isn't the one that's actually doing all the work. No, they know that the team is part of that. And if you're part of that team and you're looking out for the team, you're going to get recognized. Now, if every time something good happens, you're jumping up and down, waving your hand, saying, give me credit, give me credit, give me credit. Who wants that person on their team? Who wants to promote that person? No. Support the team. Support your boss. Keep your ego in check. If you could sum up some of the most important leadership skills, what would they be? You know, I, there's, there's one question that I get asked, asked a lot, and that is, what should I do as a new leader? How, how can I perform well as a good leader? And in this new book, I've got a list of them, and I'll, I'll summarize them. You know, be humble. Don't act like you know everything because you don't. Listen. Treat people with respect. Take ownership of failures and mistakes. Pass credit for success up and down the chain of command. Work hard. Have integrity. And when I talk about having integrity, what I mean is do what you say and say what you do. Be balanced. I already talked about, you know, you don't want to be on the extreme of anything. Be decisive. When it comes time to make a decision, make a decision. Build relationships. And, of course, lastly, as a leader, you need to get the job done. That's what your job is to accomplish the mission. So if you want to be a good leader, you've got to get the job done. I know a few people that thought they were going to get a promotion and they never did. And so what these people do now is spend all of their time complaining about their horrible lot in life. What would you recommend that person do? Instead of complaining, what can they do in order to move up? Yeah, what I would do is do a self-assessment and see what I could have done better to so I could get promoted. And then I would actually talk to my, my boss and say, hey, boss, you know, there was this promotion that just happened, and, and I know I didn't get it, and I know that that must indicate that there's some things that I could do better. And I was wondering if I could get some feedback so that I can do a better job so that the next time there's an opportunity to step up into a leadership role, you can look at me, and I'll be ready to support, you know, you in that position. And then guess what? When you do that, you're going to get feedback, and some of that feedback might make you mad. And you know, what you, you know what's getting mad? Your ego is getting mad. So put your ego in check. Take the criticism, make adjustments, and keep performing well until you get the, do get the promotion you wanted. And I'll say something else. One of the biggest mistakes that people make when they're trying to get promoted is trying to get promoted. Their focus is on getting promoted instead of focusing on doing a good job, instead of focusing on supporting the team. And if that's where your focus is, people notice that. And people notice that what you're doing is trying to get yourself promoted, and people don't want to work with people that are just looking out for themselves. So don't do that. Instead, support the team, support the mission, look out for your teammates, and eventually you will get promoted. The book is Leadership Strategy and Tactics. Jocko, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? Well, I've written a bunch of books. I've written eight books, four of which are for adults and four of which are for kids. So any of those books is a good way to kind of read about me and the things that I think about. I, I'm on social media at, at Jocko Willink, and I have a, a podcast called Jocko Podcast, which is me talking about leadership really through the lens of human struggle. And do you have a website? Yeah, I have a leadership consulting company, and the website is echelonfront.com, and then I have a podcast website, which is jockopodcast.com. And as always, you can visit our website, CYACYL.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, and be sure to sign up for our mailing list. Jocko, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your service. Well, it was an honor to serve, and thank you for having me on. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. 
What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Calm, vitality, mindfulness. We all want them, but they seem so hard to attain. Escape the stress and frenzy of the city streets. New York Open Center offers courses, trainings, and a vibrant community to help you start your journey for a more balanced and healthy life. Visit our website at opencenter.org for more information. Stop by our cafe and bookstore for all your wellness needs. Find your center at 30th and Madison. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. your health. Joining me today is Dr. Katherine Berndorf, co-founder and medical director of the Motherhood Center, a treatment center in New York City for pregnant and new moms experiencing anxiety and depression. She specializes in treating women before, during, and after pregnancy, as well as at other times of transition in their lives. Dr. Berndorf is an associate professor of psychiatry at Cornell. She was a regular mental health columnist for Self Magazine and has appeared on numerous television programs, including The Today Show, Good Morning America, MSNBC, and CNN. She is a co-author of the new book, What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. Dr. Berndorf is here today to discuss relationships after childbirth. Welcome, Dr. Berndorf. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Joan. Catherine, having a baby can be the most wonderful time in our life, but sometimes the demands of motherhood become overwhelming. Is it normal to be on edge and fight with those closest to us, like our parents or even our partner? Oh, absolutely. I mean, can you imagine you've just added a whole new member of the family, um, and it's a very vulnerable time, and you've just, you know, been through a pregnancy and a delivery, and it's like you just run a marathon. You're not expected to, like, get up and walk perfectly, right? Like, as a metaphor for the idea that, like, Everything has changed and things are harder in a new way, not forever and always, but the identity transition, I think, is so underappreciated in new motherhood that how could things not be difficult and how could relationships not be stressed in new ways? So when a new mother finds herself experiencing these types of emotions, what can she do before she goes into battle with a loved one? Oh, that is a big question. Um, you know, I think that if in the best case scenario, when someone's pregnant or even prior to pregnancy, there is some appreciation for the idea that becoming a mother, right, this a word that's kind of been revitalized um, after um, being coined in the, in the 70s, um, a word called matrescence, right? Becoming a mother, like adolescence, becoming an adolescent or a teen, right? It's this bumpy transitional period. And it is difficult at best. And it is um, under, as I said, appreciated and recognized as this transition that really rocks your world. And if you kind of know that going into it and have appreciation for that, Maybe you'll be a teeny bit ahead of the curve when it happens, right? So so that kind of preparation or thinking about it when you're pregnant, right? The idea that, oh, boy, life is going to change. Life as I know it will never be the same because guess what? It won't. That doesn't mean it's going to be worse or it's only going to be better. It's going to be many things. And the anticipation of the change, you know, and putting on your metaphoric seatbelt is a really kind of important um, thing to hold in your awareness. 
So what can our family members and loved ones do? Because, you know, sometimes the people closest to you really know how to push your buttons. So what can they do to help defuse the situation? Yeah. So listen, it's isn't ironic that the people closest to us, you know, because they do know our buttons and can push them. So why do they, you know, but but they do because (laughs) things that's sort of an acting out, right? They're not. Sometimes it's not as easy to speak directly about what's happening and bring a new baby into the picture who's got demands 24 seven. It it makes it rough on everyone to figure out how to be and um, how to be their best self, right? How to um, use their words and use their mature skill sets to, to communicate. So it's quite rough to um, navigate the terrain, but but figuring out how to talk about things as opposed to just feeling bad or mad or sad, right, is figuring out how to put words to that. It's like right, going back to kindergarten. Use your words. How do you talk to people about how you're feeling? And, um, you know, sometimes that's hard for the for the new mom who may be in a very vulnerable state. But but maybe that's you, you, you want to with your if, you, if you're. If you have a partner and a good relationship there, it's it's figuring out, okay, how are we going to talk to your parents or my parents so that they get that we actually don't want them to walk into our house without knocking on the door or we don't like it when they do, you know, pick up the baby without washing their hands or whatever it is. Right. All these little teeny unexpected things can become fights. Maybe you and your husband or you and your partner aren't even on the same page about those things. Maybe Someone said to me yesterday, my husband doesn't even see it. He thinks whatever that his parents do is like, he's like fine with it, but it drives me crazy. So what do you do with that? Right. So how do you figure out how to talk with your partner and express it in a way that's not going to only put them on the defensive, but is, and you're not at your best. So being able to facilitate a conversation like that it is hard, but ultimately that's what it is. It's about communication as much, you know, sort of openness and directness and kindness, kindness and empathy as you can muster in those moments, whether it's, you know, with the partner or with a parent or a sibling or someone who's disappointed you or, you know, any of the feelings that you're having about the shifting in relationships, you know, the more directly and kindly those can be addressed, the better off you hopefully will be. Catherine, you're talking about shifts in relationships. What about the shift that occurs between the new mother and her romantic partner. Prior to the arrival of the baby, the partner was the mother's world. And once the baby comes, the focus shifts. What about that resentment and jealousy that the father or partner ends up feeling toward the mother? What can she do to help with that? Right. Well, you're describing a very common phenomenon, which is like when you go from two to three, anybody knows, you know, you're in a a dialogue, you bring in another person or a third friend or a third wheel, we even have a term for it, right? Like, it's a complicated position. The, the, The question is, is, you know, like you said, Maybe the partner used to be the center of the the new mom's universe, and now there's a baby competing, quote unquote, for time and attention and needs being met, right? It's like, again, it's all the expressions that we use all the time. Stop being a baby. We say to adults, it's like, because I actually have a real baby here, right, who needs attention. But guess what? The partner is feeling bereft, too. And I, I think it brings up one of the very common themes that happens in this this period of matrescence, which is loss. And it, it, it seems, again, somewhat ironic or surprising that you've gained this baby, but you've lost many things, right? And, and these things are true at the same time. Like, it's not a zero sum that you get one and give up the other, but you both get one and give up the other, right? You can't be a, you can't be a not mother once you are a mother, but you, you do have a life. You did have a life before and an identity that, that there's still a self. So you have to navigate that with a partner, right? Who has potentially been displaced, dethroned, um, detached from, because you're the object of your, in some way, desire, like, everything is taken over by the baby, um, even if it's just physical need. But, but that really puts a, can really drive a wedge between you and your partner. So talking about it. So you ask what to do, and it's 
talking about it. It's airing the feelings, saying things like, I feel left out, um, mm-hmm. not you are leaving me out. Again, back to kindergarten, use I statements. Right. I feel sad. I feel I feel like I don't matter anymore. And typically when someone hears that, they can say, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry you feel that way, as opposed to you're such a baby. But right The nuances of the conversation, again, which this is a hard time to do it, but the better you get it, the more practice you give yourself or challenge yourself to do, the the more likely you are to have success and, and, and find new ways to be a triad now that you're no longer a dyad. This baby's in your life. So how are you going to work that out? with with the different relationships that are that are there. The book is What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood by Dr. Katherine Berndorf. If you would like to get more information about Katherine and her work, you can visit themotherhoodcenter.com. And as always, to hear more from Dr. Berndorf, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Katherine. We'll be right back. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures, and today I'm going to share two tips to simple social media success for your business. First, be consistent. Facebook and Instagram are owned by the same company. Both of their algorithms value you showing up on their platforms. Make sure your content is interesting and fresh. Don't repost the same thing every week. Your followers are looking for value, so being consistent with good, solid posts is important. The people following you on these platforms want to know that you are still active, or they'll move on to someone else who is and forget about you and your business. So if you decide to post once a week, two or three times a week, every day, or even a few times a day, make sure you're consistent about it. Second, be engaged. This is the social part of social media. You can make real connections by commenting on other people's posts and engaging with those who post on your posts as well. Getting to know who your followers are is really important. Support their pages. Call out what you like about their posts. Then share their posts with your followers. It's a win-win for everybody. If you need help with your social media for your business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. Get social with Sue. Recently, I was flipping through a toy catalog shopping for a gift for a French child when I stumbled upon an item that had brought hours of enjoyment to my children. It's a square box that has different shapes cut out into each side with matching pieces. The goal of the toy is for children to fit each piece into its corresponding hole, thus learning to recognize shapes and how to fit like things together. My boys spent hours placing the various shapes into their respective holes. Most times, the pieces fit together with ease, But on occasion, they would work tirelessly trying to make the wrong piece fit into the wrong hole. An oval in a circle, a square in a triangle, a rectangle in a square. As I reminisced about them sitting on the floor working at this task, I began to think about how this activity mimics what we do throughout our life, work to make the pieces fit. Hi, this is Joan Herman, here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Sometimes our choices fit perfectly, but other times, no matter how much energy we expend, they just don't fit. How many times have you been in a friendship or romance that didn't work out? In most situations when the breakup occurred, anger, heartbreak, and disappointment soon followed, then blame. Someone must be at fault. Someone was wrong. You tried so hard, so why couldn't it survive? Instead of being consumed with anger and resentment, Did you ever stop and think that maybe, just maybe, it was simply a wrong fit and that no one is to blame? Like the pieces in the toy, each of us has an individual design derived from life experiences. We are each as unique as a circle, square, triangle, or octagon. When we make the right match, everything fits perfectly. But when we have the wrong pieces, it doesn't work, no matter how hard we push or on what angle. It would be ridiculous to say something is wrong with the circle because it didn't fit in the square. We recognize the shapes as being different, so why do we make those claims about people? Why do we assign blame to a person and then spend the rest of our life being angry and resentful, thinking about what could have been? Perhaps a new perspective would be to view each of us as the pieces of the toy, unique with our own characteristics, perfect in our design, but not always a fit. No matter how hard we try to squeeze it together and how much we want it. 
Perhaps looking at life experiences in this way may make it easier to let go and stop assigning blame. It may enable us to forgive and move forward. So the next time you experience the loss of a valued relationship, rather than being consumed with anger and bitterness, just release it. Try to view yourself and the other person as shapes, different from each other, but with their own purpose, beauty, and value. Perfect in their individuality, but they just don't fit. Thanks for spending these minutes with me. For more information and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. According to our next guest, Du Heinen, the one critical networking skill that can make or break your career is your ability to get the meeting. Stu joins us today to share tips to help you break through to top accounts. Stu is a Wall Street Journal cartoonist, Hall of Fame nominated marketer and author. He discovered the magic of contact marketing early in his career when he launched a campaign with a $100 investment, which resulted in a 100% response rate and millions of dollars worth of business. Stu is the author of Get the Meeting. Welcome, Stu. Thanks for joining us. Oh, my gosh. What a pleasure to join you. Well, Stu, you're concept of contact marketing that we're going to talk about today. It has created response rates as high as 100%, and you've helped professionals around the world open doors in their careers. For those who may not be familiar with the term, what is contact marketing? Sure. Well, I'm, I'm thinking most people aren't going to be familiar with it because it's it's a term I, I, I coined in, um, in my first book, How to Get a Meeting with Anyone. And, and mm-hmm. so really what it is, is it's I'm going to say this with a focus on sales and marketing, but it really shouldn't be just confined to that. I mean, like job search could be part of this too. It, it works in a lot of ways. But in a sales and marketing sense, it's it's a fusion of marketing and selling that um, uses micro-focused campaigns to reach people who are of critical importance. As I mentioned in the introduction, you had an early experience where you turned $100 into millions of dollars. So tell us about that experience and what you learned from it. Yeah, well, so, you know, I, very early in my career, I, w- I wanted to create direct mail campaigns for publishers. I don't know why, but that just really fascinated me. And my education was in marketing, but I was also, I was a budding cartoonist at, the, at that time. I was a member of, the, member of the Cartoonist Guild. I was having cartoons published in the, in the Los Angeles newspapers. And I wanted to mix all of that with personalization. In, in direct marketing campaigns for you know the big publishers like Time Inc. and um, Condé Nast, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, etc. And so, I, th- so the first two assignments I got were for Rolling Stone and Bon Appetit magazine. So in both cases, I created a test campaign that went up against what they would call their control. And, and statistics were always testing against a control group, a constant in direct marketing. They're always testing, or I should say that control is the most effective thing they've ever put in the mail. So if you tie a control, you've just tied the record. That's pretty amazing. But my two efforts beat their controls. In other words, I, the first two, my first two tries, I ended up um, setting new records for the, for the two magazines. So I thought, okay, that's, I, I need to go out and bring, this is my chance to bring this to the rest of the publishing world. And again, that meant going out to, I, you know, let's say two dozen people and and really just a handful of companies, because again, we're talking about companies like Time Inc. and um, Time, actually it was Times Mirror and, uh, back in those days, but now Bonnier Magazines and Condé Nast and so on. So it really wasn't a lot of people. And I knew that I, I you know, I needed to reach all of them. And so I came up with a, um, a this little campaign. I didn't know what to call it. So I called it a contact campaign. It was a an eight by 10 print um, of a cartoon personalized to each recipient. That was sort of the thing I was introducing in direct response. So, um, and then it went with a, with a note that said, this is the device I just used to beat the controls for Rolling Stone and Bon Appetit. And I think we should put this to the test for your titles as well. And well, so what ended up happening was I got through to all of them. All of them connected with me, which is a hundred percent response 
mm-hmm. to that small campaign. And then all of them became clients. So it's also 100% conversion. Mm-hmm. And, and it, so that came from, I spent about $100 on the campaign and it ended up launching my business, which was worth millions of dollars. So anyone who knows anything about marketing, I mean, those numbers are unheard of. So how did you achieve this? What did you do differently? Well, you know, and, and I, I'm glad you said that about the numbers because the numbers um, involved with contact, uh, sorry, you know, contact marketing are so different from other forms of marketing. So, for example, in, in direct response, they, I don't know, maybe they still say it, but they used to say a 1% response rate was a typical response. There is a, no such number, but let's say it is. Right. If a 1% response is typical, then you, you look at, let's say, click-through rates on in digital media, and they're... They, they could be thousands of a percent. So these numbers that we're seeing, though, in, in contact marketing go really high. You mentioned 100% response rate. I've seen it. I've, I've, it doesn't always happen, of course, but I've seen it. Many others I, I discovered have also experienced 100% response rates. But even if you're getting a 20% response rate, that's just huge right. in, in the world of marketing. Um, and you're asking how I did it. And I, I, I guess the way I did it was by sending a cartoon about the recipient, um, it's kind of a thrill to get, particularly you're getting a cartoon by one of the New Yorker or Wall Street Journal cartoonists, let's say, and they've sent you a cartoon about you. Well, you're probably going to pay attention to that. And that had, that's, and that's what was happening. That was what was at work in my ca- uh, campaigns. So by making it personalized, you're appealing to someone that would click it open, and then you get that opportunity to showcase your work and what you could do for them. Yeah. And, and but the thing actually goes much further than that, because what I really want to do is I want to send them something or do something that causes the the person on the receiving end to say, wow, man, I love the way you think. Because if, if that's the way I've introduced myself and that's the, that's the effect, then surely we're going to have a meeting. It's going to be a pretty good one. Stu, you yeah. write about developing a VIP statement. What is a VIP statement? Well, you know, I think we've all been through this. You call up someone, they're really important to you. You really want to make an impression and you're tongue-tied, and, and you say, oh, my God, what do I say? Or, and sometimes they'll say to you, or you got me on the phone, you have 10 seconds, what is it? <laughs> and you mm-hmm. go, oh, my God, you'll spend 10 seconds going, oh, geez, what do I say? Right. So um, so, so the, the VIP statement, though, is a, is a statement that in my book I'd said should be 12 words or less, and certainly that's the right goal. It might be a few words more than that. But it's the thing that you can say to them that has them saying, really? Well, that's fascinating. Or really, how would you do that? How could you make that happen for me? Could you offer a strategy that someone who's listening to you right now could implement that might increase his or her success rate? Yes. You don't have to go to great expense either. Um, To do that, I need to explain a little little bit about personalization. So Mm -hmm. when I started out, personalization was, I would call it wide personalization. So we were were doing things that were persona-based. We were... um, you know, I would, you, I'd have to make assumptions. So, if, for example, if we were going to, out with a, with a campaign in the mail uh, for a magazine about hunting and fishing, well, we're going to have to assume that you love hunting and fishing. Then the, <clears throat> the cartoon is about usually a couple of characters are talking about the recipient. And somehow in the cartoon, the, one or, or all of the, the characters in the cartoon end up being sort of the butt of the joke, and you end up being the hero as the recipient. You end up being the hero. So... <clears throat> that sounds awfully dry, but if you were, if you were looking at one of these cartoons, there's one one in my image bank by Leo Cullum from from the New Yorker, and it shows this meeting taking place at a at a table, and the the leader of the meeting is saying, "Let's study the reports, analyze the trends, crunch the numbers, then copy what Joan Herman does." And so, sending you that, I I would hope you'd be saying, "Oh my God, this is exactly what I hope is happening in my competitor's boardroom," and and so that. That ends up, I think that ends up with a with just this very with this just this magical effect of saying, "Wow, oh my God, that's so cool!" And so that's that's how it works. Stu, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? Um, you can visit my website, my author site, which is um, my name, Stu Heinick, uh, dot com. So S T U H E I N E C K E dot com and. Certainly, I have a couple of books out. There's, there's How to Get a Meeting with Anyone, and then uh, the new one, Get the Meeting. They're actually a companion set. And once again, that is StuHynick.com. Stu, thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Do you suffer with heel pain? Hi, I am Dr. Anant Joshi, a podiatrist from Woodland Park, New Jersey, practicing at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. According to the American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery, plantar fasciitis is the most common cause of heel pain. The condition occurs when the plantar fascia on the bottom of the foot becomes inflamed. This ligament is responsible for supporting the foot's arch. Risk factors include being obese, having a very high arch, having tight calf muscles, and participating in activities that create stress on the heel bone. Activities such as running, jumping, certain workout routines. Most people can manage plantar fasciitis with at-home treatment. Resting the foot and applying ice can reduce inflammation. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as ibuprofen or naproxen can help with pain management. Stretching the muscles of the leg thoroughly before and after physical activity, as well as throughout the day, may help to reduce the heel pain. Wearing supportive shoes as well as custom-molded orthotics can also help relieve the heel pain. If an individual's plantar fasciitis does not get better with these treatments, see a podiatrist for further treatment options. In today's medical world, there are several non-surgical options available to get rid of plantar fasciitis permanently. If you would like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. Do you hold on to the wounds of the past? Does it affect how you live your life? And is it getting in the way of you experiencing joy? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati, owner of Awaken Sound Health. Emotional wounds may be less visible than physical wounds, but the impact is just as powerful. Painful memories and past events can continue to influence and affect how you are living today, and it can also affect your health and the longevity of your life. A study published in 2011 in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences concluded that elderly people who reported feeling the least happy died at twice the rate over a five-year period of those in the study who reported feeling the most happy. Your health depends on your happiness. You are an energetic being, and the energy of your emotions is crucial to your health and well-being. In order to live joyfully, you have to let go of your past. One effective way of doing this is through meditation and sound healing. It's time for you to liberate those old hurts and get happy through a healing vibration sound bath or one of our other offerings at Awaken Sound Health. Release into the soulful sounds and vibrations of therapeutic instruments that entrain your brain into a state of meditation so you can let go of negative thought patterns, embrace joy, and live in peace. Book an appointment today at awakensoundhealth.com. Sound healing is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. Do you struggle to find the balance between elite performance and mental wellness? Hi, I'm Scott Doty, academic mentor, performance coach, and founder of Brainstorm Tutoring and Arts. And I often tell my students and my clients that wellness is the first step to achievement. When we say that we want to achieve at a high level and achieve peak performance when the stakes are high, whether that be on a big test, on the admissions process for college or grad school, nailing the interview for the dream job, killing it on the big performance for your theater or your music or your sports, we always begin with wellness. And so we start with the basics, sleep, hydration, breath work, community, and positive self-talk. From the basis of incredible personal, emotional, mental wellness, we have the stability to build into our goals to achieve at our best performance level in whatever it is that we're performing and pursuing and endeavoring to kill and crush and dominate in. We begin with wellness and then performance follows. If you want to hear more about our holistic approach to elite performance, please check out Brainstorm's website, stormthetest.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. to 
live a happy, productive life. But sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book Infant Inspiration and creator of the online course Moms, Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations about motherhood, her insightful perspectives, look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She's here today to discuss why we need to parent from a place of love. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. It's always good to be with you, Joan. Thanks for having me. So, Amy, one of the ways you help mothers is to guide them to become aware of their place in their parenting. And you say we need to parent from a place of love. Now, as parents, I'm sure we think we do, but what does that mean to you? You know, yes, definitely. The moms that I work with, 100% of us would all say that we parent from a place of love because we all love our children, right? But there is a distinction, Joan, and just because we love our children doesn't necessarily mean that we automatically parent from that place of love, right? Because when we come from a place of love, it's rooted in a place of trust. And what that means is when we parent from a place of love, we trust that our children are going to be okay. We trust that they're going to know what's right and what's good. We trust that we will be able to teach them that. Whereas the opposite of that is really parenting from a place of fear, and that causes our kids to feel worried and anxious most of the time. So it's important to recognize how we feel when we're actually parenting. It's easy to love our children. Well, most of the time, it's easy to love our children, right? Mm -hmm. But we have to consciously think when we're in a moment and our child is reacting a certain way. Are we coming from a place of fear, which is a distressing emotion, right? Really, that's arousing just, you know, pain and evil and concerns about, you know, all these things that we could be afraid of. And so you have a sense of calmness, and it's a solution-based way to parent. Do you think that when parents parent from a place of fear, it's really that they're putting their own fears on their children? And and do you think that they tend to live their life more that way themselves? I, I Unfortunately, yes, I do. I think that especially, you know, Joan, in the day and age that we live in where there's 24-hour news and concerns about all types of climate change and terrorist attacks and all that stuff, a lot of parents can focus on that. And when that's our focus, then it's very easy for us to be afraid of what life will be for our children or who they should be afraid of, what they should be concerned about on the internet. So we definitely, that rubs off on our kids. And um, we have to be very aware of how all of that fear-based news and all of that fear in society is affecting how we're approaching our children. Because our children, you know, studies show that kids come into the world and and they don't know fear, they're taught fear. Instinctually, you know, we all have that animal instinct to, keep, to, to stay alive, to survive. But the rest of the fears of the what-ifs about success, what-ifs about, you know, our health, all those what-ifs, those are learned fears. And that's what we need to be really aware of and how we're projecting them onto our kids how we deem they should be successful, how we deem they should be living their lives. We really need to trust and come from a place of love saying, hey, I need to role model and I need to role model from a place of confidence and leadership and know that my children are watching. So Amy, you're saying that we need to become mindful of this. Is there some way that we can distinguish if it's coming from a place of love or fear? Absolutely. The easiest way to distinguish that, Joan, is um, when you're parenting your child, and I know we've all had these experiences, and I've had moms in my groups who've attested to this as well. When we parent from a place of fear, that's when we're ordering our kids around. Whereas when we parent from a place of love, we're talking with our children with the same care and respect that we speak with a friend or that you and I are speaking to to each other with now. Mm -hmm. We come from a place of respect. Whereas when we parent from fear, it gets us all riled up 
and it doesn't do anyone good. It's, it gets us riled up, it gets emotional, and it's a downward spiral, right? We can all think of times when there's been arguments and things spiral out of control, right? Whereas when a parent comes from a place of love and they're calm and they're focused on solutions, then something positive comes out of maybe a disagreement or something like that. Do you have any advice that can help us make this transition? Absolutely. I think the best advice, as I always say to the moms that I mentor, is to become more self-aware. So speak with trusted friends and hear yourself, what you're saying to your children. Read more on self-awareness and really think about how you're acting in certain ways. Um, There's definitely a need for all of us to become self-aware, right? But as moms, since we're leading our families, it's even more important. And that's really, Joan, that's why I'm launching my online course, because it'll give moms specifically a safe place to become more self-aware and, as a result, learn more about who they are and who they want to be as moms. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Amy and her work, you can visit amymcollins.com. Or, as always, to hear more from Amy, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Amy. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. I want to be riding my bike. But at this moment, he's fighting leukemia. St. Jude Children's Research Hospital is saving lives with pioneering research and care. And we'll never have to pay St. Jude for anything. Please take a moment and visit stjude.org today. joining us i hope you found the show informative at change your attitude change your life we believe that knowledge is power take what you've learned apply it and live your best life now remember the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation if you'd like more information visit our website cyacyl.com that stands for change your attitude change your life while on our site listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.